I work as a childcare professional, and one of the kids I was taking care of had recently developed a keen interest in hiking. Eager to encourage his newfound passion, I decided to take him to Salt Fork State Park for a memorable hiking trip. The chosen trail for our adventure was Hosack's Cave Trail, a route I was quite familiar with. It was relatively short, spanning about half a mile in total, making it ideal for our daily hike. What drew me to this trail, aside from its manageable length, was its popularity. Whenever I had been on it before, it had always been bustling with people, and it felt like a safe and well-trodden path. However, this particular summer had seen a series of severe storms that wreaked havoc on the trail. To my surprise, it had become more complex and oddly devoid of hikers. Nevertheless, I wasn't too concerned about the solitude since a small construction crew was working on a bridge, albeit barely visible from the trailhead. The child was excited about the hike, even though the entire width of the trail had been washed out, leaving only a precarious foot-wide path with a substantial 6-12 to 12 foot drop into a creek bed below, strewn with rocks and fallen trees. His athleticism gave me confidence in his abilities, and his enthusiasm for the adventure was infectious. I couldn't bring myself to deny him this experience. We eventually reached a platform that provided a breathtaking view of Hosack's cave. Surrounding the platform were numerous downed trees, and unfortunately, the cave itself was closed off at this point. Nevertheless, we had come this far, and our determination led us to maneuver around the barriers and venture a few hundred feet into the cave's opening. Most of our time was spent in this area, as it proved to be quite challenging to get there. I vividly remember the surroundings, tree roots directly under the platform, offering a climb down on either side. Hosack's cave wasn't like the typical creepy, confined cave. It had an open, beautiful layout, with an overhanging rock formation and a gentle waterfall trickling down the middle. As we explored deeper into the cave, I noticed a candle resting on a large rock. It hadn't been lit recently, but there was a heart carved into the stone beside it. I shrugged it off, assuming it was just a spot for a romantic date. However, my unease began to grow when we reached the top of the cave and spotted two more candles neatly arranged in stacks of small rocks. A sense of discomfort settled in, but it was at that moment that the child's eyes lit up as he discovered a small puddle teeming with baby salamanders. His joy was palpable, and I couldn't bear to cut short his happiness. We spent around an hour catching these tiny creatures, and I watched him revel in the moment. Finally, we decided it was time to leave, but as we returned to the platform, I couldn't ignore the sight that now filled me with dread. Hanging in the center of the tree roots was a wet washcloth, a new addition that hadn't been there before. The child noticed it too, but he didn't seem to grasp the gravity of our situation. At that moment, I knew two things for sure. First, someone had been watching us all along, unseen. And second, they were now possibly lurking in the woods, intentionally staying hidden but leaving objects behind for us to find. With no option to run back along the narrow, treacherous trail, I decided to keep my fears to myself. I urged the child to walk ahead of me, continuously offering words of encouragement to keep him moving briskly. My eyes scanned the surroundings, but I saw no one. However, the feeling of being watched persisted throughout our hike back. 
We eventually reached the car, and I locked the doors immediately. As we drove out of the park, a disheveled man in his thirties emerged from the woods, making a deliberate point to lock eyes with me. His expression was vacant, like nothing I had ever seen on a human face before. He followed my car with his gaze and head as we passed by him, his stare unbroken until he faded from view. At that moment, the third fact became chillingly clear. This man had intentionally made himself known to me. The first two facts were confirmed. Someone had been watching us, and they wanted us to know it. The memory of that stare haunted me for days, and I seriously considered seeking counseling, as the anxiety it triggered lingered for weeks. I tried to rationalize the encounter, telling myself that maybe we had unwittingly disrupted the man's solitude or interrupted his bathing ritual, but the timing, the stare, and the fact that he had all the opportunity in the world to approach us during our salamander hunt made it difficult to dismiss as mere coincidence. Deep down, I couldn't escape the chilling possibility that his actions had been a deliberate attempt to terrify me. The child, blissfully unaware of the danger we might have been in, still recalls that day as one of his most exciting adventures. For me, however, it remains one of my most disturbing and unsettling experiences, a memory that continues to make me feel sick and disturbed to this day. When I was much younger, I found myself working for a local mining company that had recently arrived from out of state. I was at the very bottom of the totem pole, so to speak, relegated to the ranks of the dirt crew. Our job was as basic as it gets. We shuffled and moved dirt in this massive open pit mine. This place was a behemoth of a site, a colossal pit filled with boulders of all sizes. You see, mining operations involved some seriously hefty machinery. These colossal vehicles were not your run-of-the-mill trucks. Their tires could reach a staggering 14 feet in height. The one at the center of this eerie tale was no exception, and it boasted a set of air brakes to help counter its immense momentum. On that fateful day, I was just wrapping up my brake when my boss approached me with a peculiar request. He wanted me to inch this colossal dump truck a few feet forward closer to the gaping maw of the enormous pit. My boss was the one who had hired me, and he knew my capabilities on the job better than anyone. So despite my initial surprise, I figured he must have had faith in my abilities. After all, he wouldn't ask me to do something I couldn't handle, right? Little did I know how wrong I would be. As I climbed the ladder to the driver's seat, I began to sense that perhaps I had bitten off more than I could chew. Standing atop the ladder, peering into the cab, I hesitated. Doubts gnawed at me, but I still couldn't believe my boss would assign me a task I couldn't handle. I lowered myself into the driver's seat, immediately taking note of the brand new, pristine leather interior. The scent of newness hung in the air. This vehicle had a mere 19 miles on its odometer. I started the engine, and it roared to life, but I struggled to shift it into gear initially. Eventually, I got it rolling, and as the massive dump truck gained momentum towards the precipice of the pit, I attempted to use the regular brakes, the ones we're all familiar with, via the pedal on the floor. Panic gripped me when it became evident that this wasn't working. My heart raced, and my mind spiraled into a frantic search for a solution. 
It dawned on me that this colossal beast must have two braking systems, and I had no clue how to operate the auxiliary air brakes. With time running out, I found myself praying for guidance. In a split-second decision fueled by sheer desperation, I yanked open the door and flung myself from the towering cab, plummeting nearly twenty feet onto the jagged rocks below. I landed with a bone-jarring thud, my knees absorbing the brunt of the impact. My eyes were locked on the monstrous truck as it teetered on the edge of the precipice. Time seemed to stretch into eternity as I helplessly witnessed the giant machine somersaulting end over end, descending deeper into the gaping pit. A colossal cloud of dust billowed up in its wake. The massive dump truck must have flipped a dozen times or more during its harrowing descent. In a surreal moment, I watched one of its gigantic 14-ton tires detach and go hurtling off, bouncing erratically across the rocky terrain. Even more astonishing, the truck's bed broke free, soaring high into the sky like some bizarre UFO. It felt like hours passed as I remained rooted in shock, staring at the spectacle unfolding before me. Finally, with a deafening crash, the colossal vehicle came to rest at the pit's bottom, a mangled and twisted wreck. It seemed to have melded with the unforgiving rocks below. I sat there for a while, unable to tear my eyes away from the grotesque scene, grappling with the shock of what I had just witnessed. Eventually, I mustered the strength to rise, dusting myself off and making my way to face my furious boss. Unsurprisingly, he was livid. He barked orders for me to march straight to the company office, which lay on the far side of the property. Apparently, hospital checkups were deemed unnecessary in his eyes. As I entered the office, a whirlwind of anger and frustration consumed me, but it was to no avail. My pleas fell on deaf ears, and I was summarily fired on the spot. I tried to argue that my boss had assigned me a task I wasn't qualified for in the first place, but my protests were met with indifference. So, on that traumatic day, I walked away without a job, my final paycheck clutched in my trembling hand, forever haunted by the terrifying spectacle of a monstrous dump truck tumbling into the abyss. In the thick of a Texan summer, the heat can warp the air and make a man think of cooler places. That's where my mind wandered as I sat on the porch, watching the kids play in the dwindling light of the day. Courtney came out, her steps slow but steady, a testament to her recovery from the accident that had turned our lives upside down. Alaska, she said, the word hanging in the air like a promise or a threat. We had talked about it for weeks, the idea of starting anew in a place as foreign to us as the moon. The company I worked for had offered me a position there, and with our mounting debts, it wasn't an opportunity I could easily dismiss. The kids, Kevin and Jamie, were oblivious to the monumental change looming over them. Kevin, at ten, had the boundless energy of a pup, chasing after everything with a sense of wonder. Jamie, seven, quieter and more thoughtful, watched her brother with a mix of amusement and envy. As I watched them, the decision weighed on me like a lead blanket. But it was a weight I had to carry, for all our sakes. We needed a fresh start, away from the memories of the accident, the endless hospital visits, and the pitying looks of our neighbors. We can do this, Courtney whispered, her hand finding mine, a gentle but firm grip. 
it was all the assurance I needed. Within months, we were uprooting our lives from the familiarity of Texas to the unknown wilderness of Alaska. The journey was a blur, a whirlwind of packing, long flights, and a seemingly endless drive. Alaska greeted us with its vast, untamed beauty, a stark contrast to the neat suburbs we had left behind. The kids pressed their faces against the car windows, eyes wide at the sight of mountains that pierced the clouds and stretches of forest that seemed to go on forever. Our new home was a wooden structure, nestled in a clearing surrounded by towering pines. It was larger than our place in Texas, but it felt smaller, dwarfed by the enormity of the wilderness around it. The first night, as the kids slept in their new rooms, Courtney and I sat in the living room, the silence around us so thick it was almost a physical presence. I remember thinking how different the stars looked here, brighter and more numerous, a glittering tapestry above us. The next morning, as I stepped outside, the crisp air bit at my skin. I had spent most of my life outdoors, but the Alaskan wilderness was a different beast. It was wild, untamed, and utterly indifferent to the struggles of a family trying to find their footing. Our neighbor, Terry, came by later that day, a casserole dish in hand. She was a sturdy woman, with a warm smile and eyes that had seen much of life. Her husband had passed away the previous spring, leaving her alone in a house that had seen better days. As we shared the meal, she told us about the community, the quirks of living in such a remote place, and the beauty of the Alaskan seasons. She didn't mention the legends then, those would come later, but in her stories, I sensed a depth, a connection to the land that was both inspiring and intimidating. That night, as I lay in bed, listening to the unfamiliar sounds of the wilderness, I couldn't help but feel a mixture of excitement and apprehension. We had stepped into a new chapter of our lives, one filled with unknowns and challenges. But I was determined to make it work, for Courtney, for the kids, for all of us. Alaska was a new beginning, a chance to rebuild, and to find something we didn't even know we were looking for. The first light of dawn in Alaska is different. It's not just the time it shows up, but the way it spreads across the land, like a slow, reluctant awakening. That's what I thought as I stood on our new porch, coffee in hand, watching the sun tease the horizon. It had been a few weeks since we moved, and the novelty of our new home was starting to wear off, revealing the hard edges of reality. Courtney had set up a small office in the corner of the living room. Her job allowed her to work remotely, a blessing given her ongoing battle with PTSD since the accident. I watched her sometimes, her face illuminated by the screen, a mix of concentration and discomfort etched on her features. She was strong, my Courtney, but even the strongest have their breaking points. Kevin and Jamie had started school. They seemed to be adjusting well, making friends, embracing the Alaskan lifestyle better than I'd hoped. Kids are resilient like that, bouncing back in ways adults can't. But I could see the longing in their eyes on the rare occasions they talked about Texas, about the life and friends they left behind. In those early days, I learned quickly that living in Alaska wasn't just about dealing with the cold. It was about understanding how the cold changes things, the way you dress, the way you plan your day, even the way you think. It wasn't just a matter of throwing on a heavier coat, 
It was a whole new way of living. The cost of living hit us hard. Everything was more expensive. Fuel, food, the basic necessities. We had to be careful with every penny, plan every trip to the store like a strategic mission. I remember thinking how ironic it was, moving to Alaska to save money and finding ourselves pinching pennies more than ever. But there were moments, brief and fleeting, when the beauty of this place would catch me off guard. Like when I took the kids hiking, and we saw a moose and her calf at a distance. Or when the northern lights danced across the night sky, painting it with colors I didn't even know existed. Our neighbor, Terry, became a regular presence in our lives. She would come over with baked goods, share stories of her life with her late husband, and give us tips on surviving the Alaskan winters. There was a strength to her, a resilience that came from years of living in this unforgiving land. I respected her for it, even as her stories of the Alaskan wilderness sent a shiver down my spine. One evening, as the kids played in the living room and Terry shared a cup of tea with us, I felt a sense of community, albeit a small one. She spoke about the winters, how they could be brutal and beautiful all at once. Her words were a mixture of caution and admiration for the land. It was during these talks that I began to understand the complexity of life here. This wasn't just a place, it was a living, breathing entity that demanded respect and offered awe in return. Terry talked about the wildlife, the hidden dangers, and the unspoken rules of living in such close proximity to nature. Her stories were interspersed with laughter and moments of silence that spoke volumes. She didn't just live in Alaska, she was a part of it, as much as the mountains and the forests. As for Courtney and me, we found solace in each other. Our conversations often drifted back to Texas, to our families and the life we left behind. But there was also a sense of purpose in what we were doing. We were here for a reason, to build a better future for our kids, to pay off our debts, to heal from the past. The days turned into weeks, and slowly, the initial shock of the move began to fade, replaced by a routine that felt almost normal. I would head out to work, the kids to school, and Courtney to her corner of the living room. In the evenings, we would gather for dinner, share our day's experiences, and slowly, the unfamiliar became familiar. But beneath the surface of our daily life, there was an undercurrent of something else, a sense of unease that I couldn't shake off. It was in the way the trees seemed to watch over our house, in the unfamiliar sounds that filled the night, and in Terry's stories that hinted at a world beyond our understanding. As winter approached, that feeling grew stronger. The days got shorter, the nights longer, and the cold seeped into everything, chilling not just our bodies but our spirits. Alaska was testing us, challenging us to adapt, to survive. And as I looked at my family, at the life we were building, I knew that this was just the beginning of our journey in this wild, beautiful, and unforgiving land. The Alaskan winter settled in like a long, uninvited guest, bringing with it a silence that seemed to muffle the world. It was during one of those silent evenings, as the kids played checkers by the fireplace, that Terry began to share the legends of the land. There's more to Alaska than just the beauty and the wilderness, she said, her voice low, almost reverent. There are stories here, tales that have been passed down for generations. 
Courtney and I listened, the warmth of the fire a stark contrast to the chill that Terry's words brought. She talked about the Alaskan Bermuda Triangle, a stretch of land where people went missing more often than anywhere else in the world. My rational mind scoffed at the idea, but there was a part of me, a part that had begun to respect the raw power of this place, that couldn't help but listen. The Wendigo, Terry continued, her eyes fixed on the dancing flames. They're the ones you need to be careful of. Wendigo? Jamie asked, her eyes wide with a mix of fear and curiosity. Dear men, Terry explained, creatures of legend, they say they can take the shape of a man, lure you into the woods, and then you're never seen again. The kids were hooked, hanging on every word. I could tell Courtney was less enthused, likely worried about nightmares. But there was something captivating about the way Terry spoke, a sincerity that made the stories come alive. As she delved deeper into the legend, describing encounters and near misses, I found myself looking out the window into the dark forest that surrounded our home. It was easy to imagine something lurking out there, something ancient and unknowable. It's not just stories, Terry said, a serious tone in her voice. People go missing. You need to be careful, especially with the kids. The evening ended with a sense of unease hanging in the air. The kids were quiet as they went to bed, and even Courtney seemed lost in thought. I lay awake that night listening to the wind howl outside, wondering about the truths that lay hidden in Terry's tales. The next day, life went on as usual, but the stories lingered in the back of my mind. At work, I mentioned them to a few colleagues. Some laughed, others nodded solemnly, sharing their own stories or experiences they'd heard of. It seemed that in Alaska, the line between legend and reality was often blurred. One evening, as I sat on the porch, watching the northern lights dance across the sky, I felt a deep connection to this land. It was beautiful and terrifying in equal measure, filled with mysteries that I was only just beginning to understand. I realized then that these legends, whether true or not, were a part of the Alaskan spirit. They were a way of understanding and respecting the wilderness, a reminder that we were just small pieces in a much larger, ancient puzzle. And as I looked out into the dark, snow-covered forest, I couldn't help but wonder what secrets it held. The Alaskan winter was a relentless beast, its cold gnawing at every inch of exposed skin. That particular day, the job was the same as always, out in the wild, where the land was as harsh as it was beautiful. As the evening approached, the light began to fade, painting the sky in shades of pink and purple. It was then that I realized I'd left my phone back at the worksite. Damn it, I muttered to myself. In any other place, I might have left it until the next day. But out here, a phone was more than a luxury. It was a lifeline. I told the crew I'd catch up with them and headed back alone. The path was familiar, a trail I had walked countless times. But as the light waned, it took on a different character. The trees seemed to lean in closer and the shadows grew longer, darker. The cold was biting, seeping through my jacket and numbing my fingers. I cursed myself for not being better prepared, but there was no going back now. The thought of the phone lying there, possibly getting snowed over or taken by wildlife, spurred me on. As I walked, the silence of the forest was absolute, broken only by the crunch of my boots on the snow.
It was eerie, this quiet, and it made me feel like an intruder in a world that was not my own. Finally, I reached the site. My phone was there, just where I'd left it, propped against a tree. Relief washed over me as I picked it up, but it was short-lived. A howl, distant yet chilling, cut through the silence, and I froze. It was probably just a fox, I told myself, or some other small creature. But Terry's stories echoed in my mind, and I couldn't shake off the feeling of being watched. I hurried back, my pace quickening with every step. The forest seemed to close in around me, and the howl sounded again, closer this time. My heart pounded in my chest, and I could feel the adrenaline coursing through my veins. The path, so familiar in the daylight, was now a labyrinth in the fading light. Every tree looked the same, every shadow a hiding place for whatever was out there. I was lost, disoriented, and the realization hit me like a physical blow. Panic set in, and I started to run, the phone clutched tightly in my hand. Branches reached out, snagging my clothes, scratching my face. I stumbled, fell, and got back up, driven by a primal fear. Then, as suddenly as it had begun, the forest opened up, and I saw the lights of the truck. I had never been so grateful for the sight of anything in my life. I didn't stop running until I reached the vehicle, slamming the door shut behind me. As I sat there, panting, my heart still racing, I knew that Terry's stories had burrowed deeper into my mind than I'd realized. The wilderness around me wasn't just a backdrop for our new life. It was a living, breathing entity with its own rules and dangers. I had underestimated it, and that mistake had nearly cost me dearly. Driving back, the warmth of the truck's heater slowly thawed my chilled bones, but the cold inside me lingered. It was a cold born of fear, a realization of how vulnerable I was in this vast, untamed land. When I got home, Courtney noticed the scratches on my face and the wild look in my eyes. I brushed off her concerns, not wanting to worry her or the kids. But that night, as I lay in bed, the sounds of the forest seemed louder, more ominous. I thought about the legends, about the Wendigo and the other tales Terry had shared. In the light of day, they were just stories, but out there, in the dark heart of the Alaskan wilderness, they felt uncomfortably real. The experience changed something in me. It was a reminder that, no matter how much we try to control our environment, there are forces out there beyond our understanding, beyond our control. And in Alaska, those forces were right outside our door, hidden in the shadows of the trees and the howling of the wind. I resolved to be more careful, to respect the land and its mysteries. But as I drifted off to sleep, a part of me knew that the wilderness had already left its mark on me. It was a mark that I would carry with me, a constant reminder of the fine line between the known and the unknown in this rugged, beautiful, and terrifying place called Alaska. The Alaskan wilderness in winter is a kingdom of ice and shadow, where every step could be your last. That reality never hit me harder than it did on that late February day. The job was straightforward. Get to the site, do the work, and get home. But nature has a way of laughing at our plans. I remember leaving the site as the sky dimmed, the twilight hours in Alaska being more suggestion than certainty. The cold was a living thing, clawing at my skin, seeping into my bones. My crew and I packed up, 
the camaraderie of shared labor keeping our spirits high despite the biting cold. They headed back, but I stayed behind for a moment, lost in thought, watching the darkness swallow the landscape. That's when I heard it, a voice, faint but unmistakable, calling my name. It was distorted, carried by the wind. Brian? I called back, thinking it was my boss, maybe coming back for some forgotten tool. But there was no reply, just the echo of my voice in the still air. I followed the sound, my rational mind screaming that this was a bad idea, but curiosity and concern for my friend pushing me forward. The darkness deepened, the trees becoming menacing silhouettes against the night sky. The voice called again, closer this time, and I quickened my pace. Then, abruptly, it stopped. The silence was deafening, the sudden absence of sound more terrifying than any noise. My heart pounded in my chest, my breath forming clouds of vapor in the cold air. I realized then that I was lost. The familiar trail was gone, replaced by a sea of white that stretched endlessly in every direction. Panic set in, a primal fear that gripped me and wouldn't let go. I thought about the Wendigo, about Terry's stories, and a cold sweat broke out despite the freezing air. Had I been lured into a trap? Was this how I would meet my end, not in a blaze of glory, but lost and alone in the Alaskan wilderness? I turned to head back, but the landscape had changed, or my sense of direction had betrayed me. Every tree looked the same, every shadow a potential threat. I stumbled through the snow, my thoughts a jumble of fear and regret. Then I saw it, a figure, tall and dark, moving between the trees. It was no human, that much was clear. Its movements were too fluid, too silent. It was the Wendigo, I was sure of it, the creature from the legends, come to claim another victim. I ran, my breath ragged, my legs burning with the effort. The creature followed, always just out of sight, but I could feel its presence, a malevolent force that filled the night with terror. I don't know how long I ran, time losing all meaning in my flight. But eventually, against all odds, I saw lights. The lights of our camp, a beacon of hope in the darkness. I burst into the clearing, my crew looking up in surprise. There's something out there, I gasped, collapsing into their arms. They didn't question me, their faces telling me they believed every word. That night, I learned the true meaning of fear and the respect that the Alaskan wilderness demands. It was a lesson I would never forget, a reminder that some legends are rooted in truth and some truths are better left unexplored. The aftermath of that night in the Alaskan wilderness lingered in my mind like a haunting melody. Lying in a hospital bed, staring at the sterile white ceiling, I had time to reflect on the harrowing events that had brought me here. The doctors said I was lucky to have only minor frostbite, but the chill that had settled in my bones wasn't from the cold. It was from the fear. Courtney sat beside me, her hand a constant comforting presence. The worry in her eyes was clear, but so was the relief. She didn't ask many questions about that night, and I wasn't sure if I could have answered them if she did. How do you explain an encounter with a legend, a myth, a creature from a story meant to scare children. I knew what I had seen, what I had felt. 
the terror of being chased, the sense of an otherworldly presence. It was all too real. But admitting it, even to myself, felt like opening a door to a world I wasn't sure I wanted to be a part of. The kids visited, bringing drawings and stories to cheer me up. I tried to be present for them, to laugh and smile, but my mind was elsewhere, lost in the endless white of the Alaskan wilderness. When I was finally discharged, the journey home was a quiet one. The landscape, once a source of awe and wonder, now seemed foreboding, filled with hidden dangers and secrets. As we passed the dense forests and snow-covered fields, I couldn't help but feel a sense of unease. Back home, Courtney and I talked long into the night. The move to Alaska, which had seemed like such a promising start, now felt like a mistake. The cost of living, the isolation, the harsh weather, it was all bearable when weighed against the chance for a better life. But this, the fear that now hung over us, was something else entirely. We discussed our options, the possibility of moving back to the lower 48 states. It wouldn't be easy, but perhaps it was necessary. The kids, still blissfully unaware of the depth of our concerns, deserved a chance at a normal life, one not overshadowed by the legends and dangers of the Alaskan wilderness. The decision wasn't made that night, but the seed was planted. In the days that followed, as I returned to work and the kids to school, the thought of leaving grew stronger. Alaska, with all its beauty and mystery, had shown us a side we weren't prepared for. I continued to work, but the joy I once found in the wilderness was gone, replaced by a constant vigilance. Every rustle in the trees, every unexpected sound, made me tense. The legends of the land, once just stories, now felt like warnings. As winter gave way to spring, the snow melting and the days growing longer, Courtney and I made our decision. We would leave Alaska, return to a life more familiar, more predictable. It was a difficult choice, but one that felt right for our family. Alaska had changed us in ways we never expected. It had shown us the beauty of the wild, the strength that comes from facing challenges, and the importance of respecting the mysteries of nature. But it had also shown us our limits, the boundaries we weren't willing to cross. As we packed our belongings, preparing for the journey back to Texas, I took one last look at the wilderness that had been our home. I felt a twinge of sadness, a sense of loss for what might have been. But there was also relief, a lifting of the weight that had been pressing down on us since that fateful night. Alaska would remain a part of us, a chapter in our lives that we would never forget. But it was time to move on, to seek a new beginning, a new adventure. And as we drove away, leaving the land of legends behind, I knew that, no matter where life took us, we would be ready for whatever came next. I need to start by saying yes, this really did happen. I also have to say that this kind of ghostly incident was one of a kind. I worked in healthcare at the time, in a local emergency department, dealing with life and death daily, including my days off and vacations. There's a lot that changes how you perceive your world. I feel as if I grew up being sensitive to these kinds of events. One year, a co-worker and I went to Keystone, Colorado for an emergency medicine conference. We drove up together and split a room. 
The lodge we were at was very cozy and comfortable, but I had a feeling of being watched from the very moment we parked. We went to the room and dropped off all our stuff. There were two queen beds there, and I took the one closest to the window. I put all the throw pillows on the right side of the bed so that I could be by the window and hear the babbling brook. When we went to bed, my co-worker was fine with that decision. After all, she said she was a light sleeper, and the sound of the water would probably keep her up all night. We then went to the pre-conference walkthrough to look for the best swag from the vendors. While at the swag convention, we ran into a few friends who worked at the local fire department. We finished our day off by going to dinner, having a few drinks, and dancing. By then, we were both so tired that we called it a night around midnight. When we made it back to our hotel room, everything appeared to be in the same place as we left it. The temperature was so perfect that we slept with the window open. We were on the second floor, so it felt safe to us, and I slept like a rock. I woke up when I felt someone crawling into the bed with me. It began at the right side foot of my bed. At the time, I was lying on my stomach, with a bit of a pillow fort on my right side. I thought, what is my friend doing climbing into bed with me? I guess if she needs to cuddle, that's fine. I chuckled softly to myself. The bed was still moving as it felt like someone was crawling right up to me. Then suddenly, I felt as if someone just laid right on top of me. I instantly became so cold, and I found it very hard to breathe. I opened my eyes and saw the hairs on my arms standing up, huge goosebumps present on my skin. With my eyes now open, I noticed there was no other person in the room. So who was on top of me? The window was open and the sun was coming up. Once this eerie feeling went away, I shot straight up in bed and looked over at my friend. She was sound asleep in her bed. I just stayed there, sitting and hugging my pillow until she woke up about half an hour later. I must have looked like a sight because she looked at me and said, Uh, what happened? I told her what had happened. Dang it, she said. Why can't the cool stuff happen to me? I'm not going to lie. I kind of became excited about the experience, but would have been okay if it had happened to her instead. Living on our 18-acre property in the Pacific Northwest, my wife and I resided in a camping trailer about 100 yards away from the main house owned by my mother-in-law. The land, once a site for logging a century ago, hid numerous untold stories and mysteries of generations past. One such story I've uncovered involves the early inhabitants, Mr. John Graham Sr. and Mrs. Mona Smith. Their son, John Graham Jr., an architect, left his mark on Seattle, designing iconic structures like the Space Needle. The lake nearby was named Lake Moneysmith in honor of John Sr.'s wife. In this wooded haven, home to our ducks, chickens, sheep, and goats, the wilderness teemed with life. Bald eagles soared overhead, black bears roamed freely, deer and their young found refuge, while possums, raccoons, and bobcats called this place home. There was even a sighting of a cougar about five miles away. But one night, an encounter shook me to my core. It was a moonless night, and I found myself outside the trailer wearing a headlamp, tending to the mundane task of emptying the black water tank. 
the beam of my headlamp barely penetrated the surrounding darkness, illuminating only what was directly in front of me. As I stood there, waiting for the tank to empty, I saw two reflective orbs staring back at me from the impenetrable void of the woods. On this land, I'd encountered and startled bears, been surprised by them, named the deer, been dive-bombed by bats, and even sprinted after a bobcat eyeing our ducks. But these eyes were different. They were tall enough to be a bear, yet not spaced apart like a deer's. My attempts to scare it off with shouts, mock charges, and furious yells proved to be futile. It stood unwavering, unblinking, and motionless. The unnerving silence hung heavy as those eyes pierced through the darkness, fixated on me. For an eternity, I waged a one-sided battle against this unseen entity, its unwavering gaze chilling me to the bone. I mustered all my courage, bellowing and stamping my feet, but those eyes, unmoving, remained fixated on me. A sense of foreboding crept in. I realized this wasn't like anything I had encountered before. The eyes, glowing and intense, never wavered. They were there, stubborn and unyielding, until suddenly they turned away. They vanished into the darkness without a sound, rustle, or twig break, leaving me with a chilling void of confusion. It's been a decade since that haunting encounter, and still, the mystery lingers. Despite the passing years, the night's events remain etched vividly in my memory. I've often contemplated the inexplicable nature of that presence, the enigmatic pair of eyes that seem to defy the natural world, leaving me with an eerie sense of wonder and curiosity that endures to this day. Yet every time I venture out to tend to the black water tank, a lingering thought nags at me. What else might be looking in those creepy woods? It was another early spring morning when I decided to head out to my favorite trailhead in Washington. I always loved how secluded it was, how it felt like my own private escape into nature. Hardly anyone ever parked there, just my trusty Mini Cooper most times. But today was different. As I pulled into the parking lot, I noticed a big white Ford pickup already there. It was so much bigger than my car, and it immediately made me feel uneasy. There's something about seeing another vehicle in a usually deserted spot that sets your nerves on edge, like walking into your house and realizing someone's moved your furniture just an inch to the left. Shaking off the feeling, I grabbed my backpack filled with water, snacks, and hiking essentials. I double-checked my hiking boots, making sure they were tied tight. The air was crisp and fresh, filled with the promise of spring. I took a deep breath, trying to let the beauty of the day wash away my lingering unease about the pickup. The trail starts right in the thick of the woods. For the first few minutes, you can still hear the hum of cars on Highway 2, a comforting reminder of the civilized world just a stone's throw away. But as you walk further, that sound fades, replaced by the symphony of the forest. It's like stepping into another world. Tall trees tower above their leaves whispering secrets to each other. The sunlight pierces through the branches, casting dancing shadows on the ground. It's mesmerizing, almost magical. I've always loved this part of the hike, where the forest feels like it's embracing you. The path is a straight shot through this dense green wonderland. 
Today, the beauty of it all was heightened by the clear, bright day. The sunbeams broke through the canopy in spots, creating a collage of light and shadow on the forest floor. It was like walking through a living piece of art, a masterpiece of light, shadow, and greenery. But as I ventured further, the comforting signs of civilization faded away. The only sounds were my own footsteps, the occasional chirp of birds, and the distant rustle of animals in the underbrush. It's funny how the absence of human noise can make you feel so isolated, so vulnerable. I've hiked this trail so many times before, but today it felt different. The silence was heavier, filled with an unspoken warning. As the trail began to climb, I found myself drinking more water than usual. Maybe it was the unease about the pickup, or maybe the beauty of the day was making me more adventurous. I've always carried a purifier pump with me. There are a bunch of streams along the way, and there's nothing like fresh mountain water to quench your thirst. I was about an hour into the hike, when the trees started to thin out. More sky than canopy, the air grew colder with the elevation, but the sun felt warmer on my skin. I stopped for a moment, catching my breath and taking in the view. It was then, in that moment of peaceful solitude, that I heard it. A muffled bang. It sounded distant, muffled by the ridge ahead of me, but I could hear its echo bouncing back a few seconds later from a cliff across the valley. My first thought was a gunshot, but that didn't make sense. There weren't supposed to be hunters here. I stood there for a moment, considering turning back, but curiosity got the better of me. I kept walking, unaware of the nightmare that was about to unfold. As I pushed further along the trail, the dense forest gave way to a more open landscape. The path, still clearly marked, wound its way up the mountain, the trees standing tall and majestic on either side. The further I hiked, the more I felt enveloped by the wilderness, a tiny speck in the vastness of nature. The first bang I'd heard earlier was still nagging at the back of my mind. It was probably nothing, I told myself. Just some distant noise, maybe a car backfiring on the highway, or some construction work. But deep down, I couldn't shake off a sense of unease. The forest, usually so comforting and familiar, now seemed to whisper secrets I wasn't privy to. I focused on the physical effort of the hike to distract myself. The trail began to ascend more steeply, and I could feel the burn in my legs and lungs as I pushed myself. I've always carried a purifier pump on these hikes. The mountain streams, crisp and cold, were a natural source of refreshment. I stopped at one of these streams, the water babbling over rocks, and filled my bottle. The water was so clear, so pure, it felt like drinking in the essence of the mountain itself. About an hour into the hike, the trees started to thin, offering glimpses of the sky above. The air was cooler here, but the sun's rays felt more intense warming my skin as I moved through patches of light and shade. I was drinking in the beauty of it all when it happened again. Another bang, louder this time, unmistakably close. It wasn't muffled like the first one. It was sharp, clear, and it echoed off the surrounding mountains, setting my heart racing. My first thought was a gunshot. Could there be hunters in the area? But that didn't make sense. This was protected land, Hunting wasn't allowed. The sound made me jump, 
and for a moment I lost my footing, stumbling slightly before regaining my balance. My heart was pounding, not just from the hike, but from a growing sense of fear. And then I saw it. Smoke rising between two red cedars ahead. It wasn't just a wisp of smoke, it was substantial, billowing up into the clear sky. Birds took flight in a flurry, their peaceful chirping replaced by alarmed calls. I instinctively ducked, even though the source of the smoke was still some distance away. My mind raced with possibilities. Could it be a campfire? But no. Campfires were banned in this area. My overactive imagination conjured images of miners using dynamite. Ridiculous, I know. This wasn't the 19th century. Curiosity and a sense of responsibility propelled me forward. I veered off the main trail, making my way through the underbrush towards the source of the smoke. My heart pounded with every step, a mix of fear and adrenaline driving me. I had to know what was going on. As I approached, the smell hit me first. It was a stench, an acrid mix of burning and something else, something foul. And then I saw it, the deer. It was a gruesome sight. Its was mangled and torn, still steaming in the cool mountain air. Its ribcage was exposed, a grotesque display of violence. Crimson was scattered around, painting the high grass in shades of red. I felt a wave of nausea wash over me. The deer's remaining eye was lifeless, staring into nothingness. The wounds were chaotic, as if inflicted in a frenzy. A landmine? Here? The thought was absurd, but my mind struggled to make sense of the scene before me. And then I heard it, a buzzing, faint at first, like a distant power tool. But it grew louder, more insistent, until I could no longer ignore it. It was a drone. Within seconds it was hovering above the clearing, its mechanical hum filling the air. I waved at it, a futile gesture. I was angry, confused, horrified. What was this? Some kind of sick game? I yelled at the drone, not even sure if it could hear me. I screamed into the wilderness, my voice echoing off the mountains. The drone just hovered there, an impersonal observer to the carnage below. I felt a surge of helplessness, a sense of violation. This wasn't just a peaceful hike anymore. It was a scene from a horror movie, and I was the unwilling protagonist. Standing there, in the middle of the clearing, I felt a shiver run down my spine. The sight of the mutilated deer was horrifying enough, but the sudden appearance of the drone added a whole new level of terror to the situation. For a few seconds I was frozen, my eyes locked on the mechanical intruder that buzzed menacingly above me. I couldn't understand what was happening. Was someone watching me? Playing some sick joke? The drone seemed like a sinister eye in the sky, cold and unfeeling. It hovered there, its presence invasive and ominous. I felt exposed, vulnerable in a way I'd never experienced before. This was supposed to be my sanctuary, my escape from the world, but now it felt like a trap. Anger bubbled up inside me, mixing with fear and confusion. I shouted at the drone, my voice echoing through the trees. What do you want? I demanded, knowing full well I wouldn't get an answer. The drone just hovered, its camera lens fixed on me, making me feel like a specimen under a microscope. I took out my phone, thinking to document this bizarre encounter. I snapped pictures of the drone, zooming in as best I could, 
That's when I noticed something even more alarming. Hanging from the drone's underside was a small, round object. My heart skipped a beat as it dawned on me what it could be. It was no bigger than a baseball, but its implications were terrifying. Was that a grenade? Panic surged through me. This wasn't just some voyeuristic prank. It was something far more dangerous. I didn't have time to process the thought fully before I heard a faint click, followed by a clinking sound. Instinctively, I dived to the ground just as a loud bang erupted behind me. The force of the explosion sent dirt and debris flying. For a moment, I was deafened by the blast, my ears ringing. I lay there on the ground, disoriented, my heart racing. I could taste metal in the air and feel the sting of smoke in my eyes. Slowly, I sat up, checking myself for injuries. Miraculously, I was unharmed. The drone had missed, but the message was clear. I was being targeted. I scrambled to my feet, my mind racing with fear and adrenaline. I needed to get out of there, to put as much distance between myself and the drone as possible. I glanced up, searching the sky, but the drone was gone. I didn't stop to think. I just ran, stumbling back toward the trail. My thoughts were a jumbled mess of fear and confusion. Who was controlling the drone? Why were they targeting me? My peaceful hike had turned into a nightmare, and I was the prey in a deadly game. As I ran, the reality of the situation hit me. This wasn't an accident. Someone had intentionally sent that drone after me. The thought sent chills down my spine. I was in real danger, and I had to get back to my car. To safety. I pushed myself harder, running as fast as my legs would carry me. The forest, once a place of tranquility, now felt like a maze of shadows and threats. Every rustle of leaves, every snap of a twig, made me jump. I was no longer just a hiker. I was a survivor, running for my life. Panting heavily, I hurtled down the trail, the once familiar path now a blur as I raced for my life. My mind was a whirlwind of terror and disbelief. How could a simple hike turn into this nightmare? The buzzing of the drone like a relentless predator haunted me, echoing through the trees. I couldn't shake the image of the grenade dangling menacingly from the drone. It was surreal, like something out of a twisted movie. But this was no movie. This was real, and I was the unwilling star. Every step I took was fueled by a mix of adrenaline and fear. The peacefulness of the forest was gone, replaced by the chilling realization that I was being hunted. I tried to rationalize the situation, to make some sense of it. Why me? Was it random, or was I specifically targeted? My thoughts were cut short by the faint yet unmistakable buzz of the drone. My heart sank. It was back. I looked up to see it gliding effortlessly above the treetops, its dark silhouette a stark contrast against the sky. In that moment, I felt a surge of anger. I was tired of running, tired of being scared. I stopped and screamed at the drone, my voice filled with rage and desperation. Leave me alone, but it was pointless. The drone was unyielding, its mechanical hum a constant reminder of my peril. I started running again, my lungs burning with each breath. I had to keep moving to outpace this mechanical menace. I stumbled over roots and rocks my legs aching with the effort. The terrain was rough, uneven, but I couldn't afford to slow down. The drone was always there, just behind me. 
a relentless pursuer. I remembered the way the drone had dropped the grenade, how it had hovered with calculated precision. It was playing a game, and I was the unwilling participant. The thought filled me with a cold dread. What if I couldn't escape? What if the next grenade didn't miss? I pushed those thoughts aside and focused on the trail ahead. I had to survive. I had to get back to my car, to civilization. The canopy of trees offered some cover, but it was only a matter of time before the drone adapted, before it found a way to reach me even here. I ran and ran, my body screaming in protest. I didn't know how much longer I could keep this up. My mind kept going back to the white Ford pickup in the parking lot. Was the driver of that truck controlling the drone? Was this some sick form of entertainment for them? The buzzing grew louder, and I glanced over my shoulder. The drone was closing in, its presence a constant threat. I knew I couldn't outrun it forever. My only hope was to reach the trailhead before it was too late. As I neared the end of the trail, my legs felt like lead, my breath ragged. But I couldn't stop, not now. I was so close to safety, so close to escaping this nightmare. The trailhead was just ahead, my car a beacon of hope in this madness. With one last burst of energy, I sprinted towards the parking lot, the drone hot on my heels. I reached my car, fumbling with the keys, my hands shaking uncontrollably. I threw myself inside, locking the doors behind me. I was safe, at least for now. But as I sat there, catching my breath, I knew that this ordeal was far from over. Whoever was behind this drone, they were still out there, and I had to find out why they had targeted me. I sat there in my car, my chest heaving with each breath, trying to process what had just happened. The once comforting rhythm of my heartbeat now sounded like thunder in my ears, a constant reminder of the terror I had just endured. The forest around me, once a sanctuary of peace and solitude, now felt like a cage. I was safe inside my car, but the feeling of being hunted still lingered, like a shadow I couldn't shake off. The drone, that relentless machine of terror, was gone, but its presence had left a deep scar. I stared out of the windshield, my eyes scanning the trees for any sign of movement. Every rustle of leaves, every creak of a branch set my nerves on edge. I wanted to drive away, to leave this nightmare behind, but my hands were shaking too much to even start the car. The trailhead was deserted. The white Ford pickup that had been there earlier was gone. A wave of relief washed over me, but it was quickly replaced by a sinking feeling in my stomach. Who was driving that truck? Were they watching me the whole time? The question spun in my head, but I had no answers. I forced myself to take deep breaths, to calm the racing thoughts. I needed to think clearly, to figure out my next move. I couldn't just drive away and pretend nothing had happened. I had to report this. Someone had tried to kill me, and they could be out there, planning to do the same to someone else. Slowly, I started the car and drove away from the trailhead. The drive back to civilization felt surreal. The road was familiar, but everything felt different now. I kept glancing in the rearview mirror, half expecting to see the drone following me. But there was nothing, just the empty road stretching out behind me. When I finally reached a town, I went straight to the police station. My story sounded unbelievable, even to my own ears, but I had the photos of the drone on my phone, 
the evidence of what had happened. The officers took my statement, their expressions a mix of concern and disbelief. They promised to investigate, to send a team to the trailhead, but I could tell they were skeptical. I left the station feeling drained, the adrenaline that had fueled me through the escape now replaced by a deep exhaustion, but there was no relief, no sense of closure. The drone, the person controlling it, they were still out there. The next day I saw the news about a missing girl. Her car had been found at a different trailhead, not far from where I had been. My heart sank as I read the article. They were looking for a white Ford F-150 in connection with her disappearance, the same kind of truck I had seen at the trailhead. I knew then that I couldn't just let this go. I had to do something. I had to find out who was behind the drone, who had tried to kill me, and was now possibly involved in this girl's disappearance. I couldn't shake the feeling of helplessness, of being a pawn in someone else's game. But I was determined to fight back, to uncover the truth and bring them to justice. This was no longer just about survival. It was about standing up against a faceless threat that had shattered my world.